All right. Um, we are going to be in Luke 7 tonight. So if you want to go there, we're starting in verse 36. And we're going to be talking about Jesus having dinner with uh, some Pharisees. And we can go ahead and move to the next slide there. Um, so let's let's read the first few verses here, and then we'll we'll set the scene with some some background information. So, starting in verse thirty-six, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So um, let's let's set the scene here. He was invited to eat by the Pharisee. um, And the first thing I thought was, why? You know, what's, what's the motivation that this Pharisee might have had? Um, maybe curiosity. Uh, If you go back a little bit um, in Luke 7, you've got these stories of Jesus' miracles uh, throughout the region. And you've got people saying things like, a great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. Um, Jesus, when talking to the disciples of John the Baptist, says, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. So this is just a glimpse of of what the people have been seeing. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. So we can assume that the Pharisees uh, had heard about what Jesus had done and that this guy maybe wanted to see for himself who Jesus was. Um, Another potential motivation may be jealousy. Um, Chuck Swindoll put it this way each time Jesus exercised his divine authority their credibility meaning the Pharisees waned each time Jesus forgave a sinner the religious leaders lost their power to condemn he contradicted their teaching exposed their pride and hypocrisy rejected their interpretation of scripture exposed the errors in their traditions and even ridiculed them as petulant little brats so Maybe there's some jealousy going on there, and they really wanted to see what was going on, who this guy was, and uh, see if maybe they could discredit him. And we certainly see that in, in some of the other stories with the Pharisees in the, in the uh, Gospels. So, regardless, we don't know the motivation, but those are some things that the, the Pharisee may have been feeling as he uh, invited Jesus to come have dinner. Um, and so it says that he went to his house and reclined at table. Um, first of all, does anybody else think that's kind of awkward verbiage, reclined at table? Does anybody use that phrase? I don't know. That's weird. Um, that, that's why I, I kind of threw in at the table, because that at least feels a little more comfortable. But uh, oddly enough, I, I found out as I was reading th- or studying this that at table is actually not in the Greek. That was, that's implied by uh, the fact that he was reclining at his house. Uh, so it's just kind of weird that they would translate it that way. Regardless, they were reclining. Uh, this is likely a banquet for a group uh, where they sat around a low table, um, lying on the ground, 
resting on one arm with their feet out behind them and eating with the other arm. Um, and so you can picture this crowd of Pharisees and Jesus, uh, maybe some of his disciples or others. And this woman of the city who was a sinner shows up. Um, she's, we don't know who she was, but she was clearly known in the town as a sinner. Um, the fact that she has her hair down uh, tells us that she may have been a prostitute. That's uh, a cultural um, peculiarity of that day. Um, and, and of course, I thought, is it normal for this random person to just walk into a house while people are having dinner? Um, and it apparently was customary for wealthy people to allow needy people to come into banquets like this and um, let them have some of the leftovers. Um, so that at least tells us that, or I guess, I guess gives us some, uh, some clarity as to how this random woman would just walk in um, and be allowed into the dinner. Um, but she wasn't there for leftovers. Um, it says that she was weeping. She wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed his feet, anointed them with ointment. This is washing his feet combined with obvious contrition and love and gratitude, worship. She's heard his message and she knows she's forgiven. <clears throat> so how does the Pharisee respond? Um, we'll go to the next slide. You'll see the next verse there. Which is verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. They're working on the slide back there. Um, but we can move on. Uh, so he's making an if-then argument here. If he were a prophet, then he would know what sort of woman this is. It's kind of a weak argument in my mind because he's making a couple big assumptions, right? Number one, he's assuming she, he doesn't know who she is. Why is he assuming that? Well, because in his mind, his second assumption, if he knew, he wouldn't let her touch him. But we know he does know who she is. He knows all our hearts. He knows all our thoughts. He knows all our past mistakes. He knows hers. And he wants to be close to her despite who she is. So, given that, let's see how Jesus responds on the next verse, starting in verse 40. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. So a denarius was typically about a day's wage for a laborer. So in this case, you have a man who's been forgiven about a, a year and a half worth of salary. That's a lot of money and one who's been forgiven about a month and a half worth of salary. Um, still a lot of money, but order of magnitude bigger. 
And in that culture, without the lender's forgiveness, they would have been put in prison until they or their family were able to repay that debt. So for both men, the punishment was the same. They're put in prison. But the man with the bigger debt could potentially take a lot longer to pay back that debt. Um, if you go to the next slide, please. I just kind of mapped it out. These guys in the top there, they were indebted financially. They owed money. And then they were forgiven of that. And that forgiveness made them feel indebted emotionally. Feeling love and gratitude. And the man with the bigger financial debt felt the bigger emotional debt in love. So the interpretation of what Jesus is talking about is simple. Where God is the lender, we're the debtors. And our sin is our debt to him. So we don't have a financial debt we owe God, but we have a moral debt. We have an obligation to follow God's law, and we don't. And so we're indebted morally, but we're forgiven. And because of that, we feel indebted emotionally, and we feel love and gratitude. And the bigger debt of sin leads to bigger love. But you'll see that I put in there, in parentheses, recognition of sin, because in a lot of cases, or in a lot of ways, this isn't a story of who really is the bigger sinner. It's a story of who recognizes their sin more. Bigger recognition of sin leads to bigger love of God. So Jesus invites the Pharisees he's eating with to identify with one of the two debtors. Do they feel like they're someone who hasn't been forgiven much because they haven't sinned much? Or do they feel like they're someone who has sinned a lot? And knowing that Simon... The Pharisee sees himself as one who hasn't sinned a lot. Jesus then shows him that he and the woman are both not who he thinks they are, at least in God's eyes. So let's go to the next slide, and we'll read on verses 44 to 46 here. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So, three things that, three distinctions he makes between how Simon treated Jesus and how the woman did. First, no water for my feet. So it was customary in this culture uh, where they walked around dirt streets with sandals to provide a wash basin for guests to wash their feet when they arrived. Um, and if a special guest was coming, then the host would provide a slave to wash the, the uh, guest's feet. Simon did neither. It says that he provided no kiss. Again, just like the modern Middle East, when uh, you greet someone, it's customary to greet guests with one or two kisses on the cheeks. He provided, <coughs> he did not provide that. And then no anointing with oil. Again, if you had a special guest, it was customary to provide that special guest with an anointing with oil. And again, he didn't do that. So the message that Jesus is giving here is that you, Simon, the one who views yourself as righteous 
provided none of the customary honors that you should have provided to a guest. And the woman, the one you view as beneath you, went above and beyond to honor me. Simon's prideful focus was on the woman's sin and how she was worthy of his contempt. So what can we take away from this part of Jesus' conversation with the Pharisee? Well, a couple things that I noticed. One is that pride can lead us to compare, which blinds us to our sin. If you look at Luke 18, you have another story of a, of a Pharisee. And Jesus, it says that, starting in verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So this Pharisee, like the other, the one in our passage, is focused on other people's sins and not his own. If we go to Romans 14.4, it says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Other people's sins are not our business. Is basically what Paul's saying there. So another takeaway that, that I thought of was that there's no qualitative difference between the two debtors or what put them in debt. There's, there's not even a mention of what put them in debt. One person's sin, I think this implies, is not worse than another. Um, some is more visible, some is more obvious, some is more culturally accepted. <coughs> so along those lines, what, what do you think is the number one criticism of Christians in our culture? Anyone? Judgmental, hypocrisy, self-righteousness. So along those lines, let's, um, let's look at Matthew 7, which should be on the next slide, where Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount here. And he gives a little um, discussion on judgment. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what does it mean to judge? That's a pretty broad term. And why does Jesus say not to do it? Um, the Greek word, and I don't pretend to know Greek, but I read this, means to separate, to make a distinction between, to exercise judgment on. 
I believe it's Crino. So that, again, pretty broad. It's, it's hard to distinguish exactly what, what he's talking about there. But let's, let's start with what Jesus doesn't mean. He's not saying to not use any discernment or not to consider what's right or wrong. Um, within this passage itself, he encourages looking for and taking the speck out of your brother's eye. You can't do that if you're not using discernment. And if you look at the letters of Paul, he repeatedly urges the early churches to admonish and correct each other. And again, you can't do that if you're not using discernment about what's right or wrong and what actions people are taking. So various scholars put it this way. Uh, He's talking about finding fault, criticizing, pronouncing another person guilty before God, or condemning. Um, and that word condemning is also used in the, uh, the similar sermon that Jesus gave that's documented in Luke 6, um, where he covers the same topic. So condemn, unfortunately, is another word that's a little difficult for us to define sometimes. Um, one illustration that I thought was helpful uh, comes from uh, my work. So I work in aircraft structures. And um, we talk about structure being condemned. And what that means is that it's no longer valuable or useful. It may have, uh, may have a crack in a critical section. It may have corrosion that's worn through too much of the thickness of a skin. It may have too many flight hours. And so uh, it's worn down and uh, ready to be tossed. But either way, it's no longer valuable or useful. And that was basically what I thought of um, in all that I read about condemnation when you when you condemn people you're essentially saying that they're not valuable that they're not useful that they're guilty before God but we're not God and it's not our place to decide who's guilty before God this is a pride issue um, where we feel like it is our place and maybe we feel better about ourselves because uh, we can condemn people in that way But condemnation from others just brings shame to those people, um, which is really condemnation from ourselves. And no good comes from shame. Uh, Behavior may change, but not the heart. Uh, If you go to 1 John, does he say, we love because he shamed us for our sin? No, we love because he first loved us. It's his love that changes us. It's our love that changes hearts because it's God's love flowing through us. If we shame people, that's not not changing hearts. So how do we judge without condemning? Um, I think it depends on the situation. If you're interacting with a stranger, um, you don't want to show any judgment. You want to show them that they're valued. If you're talking to an unbeliever, family member, a friend, a coworker, even someone you know well, again, there's no benefit to showing any judgment. We want to show them that they're valued. We can't expect those who don't follow Jesus to follow his rules. When we do, that's what leads to charges of hypocrisy. They can see the sin in the church. They know that we don't follow God's rules well. And if we charge them of that, that just leads to feelings of condemnation. 
if the time comes to talk about sin with an unbeliever, um, we don't want to talk about their sin specifically. The Spirit can and does convict them without us trying to convince them that they're sinful. Romans 1 tells us that. They'll only feel condemnation again. So what about talking to a believer? Again, a family member, a friend, fellow church member. Well, Galatians 1, which is up there, gives us some guidance on this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. I think that last part's the key part. Um, Dallas Willard gives some good guidance that I thought was worth sharing on correcting others in this context. First of all, don't correct unless you're sure of the sin. You don't want to correct people for a difference of an opinion or for people struggling with temptation or if you just think they did something wrong. Number two, correction is reserved for those who live and work in a divine power not their own is the way Dallas Willard put it. He's basically talking about the spiritual ones there in Galatians 6. Um, We want to make sure we have the maturity to really um, speak wisely on a topic before going to correct people. And uh, it's good for us to remember that we can trust Jesus to go turn tables in the temple but we shouldn't trust ourselves to do it. We have to act prayerfully and gently. Number three, correcting is for restoration. It's not for shame. It's not for control. It's not for anything other than restoration. And then number four, know that you could very well do the same thing or worse. So you need to recognize that We are just as sinful as the person that you may be wanting to correct. And I want to give a reminder to parents that Paul's talking to us in Galatians 6.1 also. Um, We need to remember to use a spirit of gentleness. Um, If we use shame, manipulation, anger, we're doing that for ourselves and not the child. It's easier to yell than to get into real issues, but it doesn't restore The goal is restoration and growth and maturity and not behavior modification. Again, we want to change hearts, not behavior. And remember, like Jesus said, as you judge, you'll be judged. Your child sees your sin. I know my my children see mine. Um, And so if we respond to their sin poorly, uh, that'll decrease their respect for us. And... Uh, they won't listen to us in the way that we want them to. So the Pharisee in our passage uh, didn't really heed this advice. He was arrogant in the way he thought about the woman. He didn't think her even worthy to touch him or anyone. And the consequences of that were that she felt shame. She wasn't helped in her sin. And then he was condemned because of his judgment and yet still felt righteous. So let's picture a Pharisee who did take this advice when interacting with this woman in our passage. He would go into the interaction with humility and sympathy. 
he would think about the fact that no little girl grows up wanting to be a prostitute. That she's only there out of desperation. And that under different circumstances, he could be just as desperate and willing to sin as she was. And he would want to help her out of her situation, help her to see her value. So what are the consequences of that? She'd be restored, she would know her value, and he would glorify God and be forgiven of his sin. So let's uh, read the last few verses here on the next slide, and we'll wrap this up. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She was already forgiven before her act of repentance, love, and gratitude. Her faith saved her. She was forgiven because of her love, not her actions. She was someone who had made bad, damaging decisions, but she was someone who Jesus loved and cared about and wanted close to him despite that. So let's do the same. Whether it's with strangers on the street or online, acquaintances at work in our neighborhoods, family members. A few questions before we wrap up. How do you feel about smelly, stoned, homeless people? How do you feel about people who disagree with your politics? How do you feel about people whose kids are making bad decisions? How do you feel about family members who cause arguments and frustration? How does Jesus feel about them? Does he condemn them? Does he try to restore them? Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let's follow his example. Let's pray. Do we have another song or are we done? All right. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to meditate on your love and your forgiveness. Thank you for the example you gave us of how to love people well without judging, without condemning. And we pray that you'll strengthen us to do that. We pray that we can see people the way that you see them, that we can see people as hurting and lost and not as enemies or opponents. And we pray that uh, we would feel your presence this week and that we would love well. It's in your son that we pray. Amen.